uh, for the reading of the word, and then we will bring all of these other things before the Lord. I am so glad to be back in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're in chapter 14, and uh, we'll pick, let me read it to you, beginning in verse 13 through 21, and then we'll, we'll pray together. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. And those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Father, thank you for the testimony of your word, that you sent your son into this world to, to put his deity on display so that we might be drawn to him, that we might be drawn into the salvation that he offers. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to encourage us and uh, that you'd speak to our hearts. And Lord, also we pray that you would minister to the hearts um, of those that were dearest to Teresa, her husband, her sister and family, Lord. Lord, we thank you for Teresa, the joy that she added to our fellowship, Lord, to our individual lives, and what a spirit of joy. And um, yeah, thank you for her. We pray that you would be with Jack. And Lord, I, I just pray that you'd minister, Lord, that this vacancy in his life, Lord, that your spirit would come and uh, just fill that void and give him hope and strength, Lord. And for her sister, Bev, who just looked after both of them so well. And just encourage her, I pray. And Lord, also um, before the body, uh, I just want to give you thanks. Um, as I've mentioned to others, we've, we've lost Joe and, and Rusty and Sean. Joe was on the security team and Lord, a loss to the team. And, but multiple men have stepped up to fill the void there and to look after the flock. And, and Lord, Rusty, who tended so much to our our building, and to so many lives individually in the church, just filling their needs, Lord. I Just what a sweet brother. But Lord, you've, you've brought somebody else to fill his place with, with David Abarta. And Lord, since Sean's passing, three men have stepped up to fill the place in the adult discipleship class, Lord. Lord, I am just astounded. I guess not surprised, just constantly blessed that you, you love this body more than we can collectively love the body. You provide, you grant grace. And Lord, I'm just so thankful and humbled by all that you do. So Lord, thank you. And uh, help us to be just great stewards with all the precious things that you give us. So Lord, we, we, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. All right. It's not sure if you thought we would ever get back to Matthew. Uh, what has it been, a month or so? But um, you were wrong. Here we are. We're back in Matthew. So I was actually hoping the Lord would come back before we got back into it. And uh, we could just meet Matthew and 
uh, hear it directly from his mouth. But um, yeah. So other than um, the details surrounding Jesus' uh, death and resurrection, uh, this story is the only one that's actually mentioned in all four Gospels. So it has a lot of witness to it. Uh, John's Gospel tells us that these events occurred just prior to the Jewish Passover, and that creates somewhat of a timestamp for us. This occurred sometime in March or April, and when we spend all of that time putting the dates together, uh, we're probably in uh, March, April of 29 AD, which places us one year uh, before the crucifixion. Jesus has one year left to minister uh, to the people of Israel and uh, uh, to just bring the gospel to them. Um, Now, in the context of our story, Jesus had previously sent his disciples away on a mission, and uh, he was now waiting for the return somewhere on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's while he was there waiting for them to come back that he has gotten word that John uh, the Baptist was executed, okay, was murdered uh, there in prison. So let's pick it up in verse 13, and uh, we'll talk about this, this story that's before us. It says, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. So when Jesus heard it, that is, when he got news that his cousin, John the baptizer was murdered by Herod Antipas. Remember, he's the tetrarch in the north. Jesus departed from there, that is from the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He sailed to uh, the northeastern shore near the city of uh, Bethsaida, where he could find solitude, and I would say probably because uh, he wanted to mourn uh, for his cousin. But as you know, Jesus... um, wasn't seeking to be all by himself, as the story reveals, but he wanted to be alone with his disciples and to be away from the crowds. Uh, Shortly, now, mind you, uh, I'm taking details from all of the other four Gospels uh, to broaden the picture so we know more of what's going on. So shortly after Jesus got word that John had been uh, murdered, his disciples returned, and you remember, they're excited Uh, to share with him all that they had been doing, that they were teaching, the miracles they had performed, saying even the demons were subject to us, because remember, Jesus had given them authority over them. It was at that time Jesus told his disciples all that had happened, and uh, it would be good to get away for some solitude. For there, the text in Mark 6.31 says, for there were many coming and going, and they, Jesus and the disciples, did not even have time to eat. That's ministry right there. And um, so it was time for rest. It was time for solitude. But as you know, for Jesus, finding uh, privacy was not that easy. And I think understandably so. You know, Jesus could heal people with just a word. And because there were, you know, sick people abounded. And because there were parents with sick children, there was just no way for Jesus to find any sustained rest. There's just too much demand for skills like that right? Imagine uh, being the parent with a child uh, or a spouse that was sick. Uh, You don't really care about people's convenience, do you? You can be quite demanding. And so there on the shores of the lake, when the people saw Jesus get into the boat, I mean, they followed him to the boat, uh, they could watch him sail away 
and determine for the most part where in the world he was going. Okay? And uh, so what they did was they, uh, they followed around the lake from the west side to uh, the north and then clear over to the, the northeast side. And then they, uh, the other gospels tell us that they beat him there and then they actually waited for him. And so it says, and when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, uh, we know thousands of them, and he was moved with compassion for them. We've talked about this word before. Uh, he had splagna, that is his, his gut wrenched uh, for what he saw about them, and then he healed their sick. So as Jesus was getting out of the boat <laughs> for privacy, for solitude, there's once again, he looked out and saw this, uh, but thousands and thousands of people. So he got out of the boat and uh, he led them to a secluded place outside of this uh, small fishing village called Bethsaida. Now, I think it's important to point out that, of course, the people had their circumstances, but currently Jesus and the disciples had theirs. And when he, when he came up out and saw over the the rim of the boat, he did not resent them, right? Even with all of his needs, he did not sort of say, give me a break, you know. He didn't despise them. He, he looked upon them with compassion. The other gospels say that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They needed the gospel of the kingdom. They needed their sicknesses healed. So instead of pushing further and further away to the east to find a quiet place, Jesus met with them he healed their sick. And this is, I think, so important. Jesus' compassion for the people eclipsed his desire for rest and his need to grieve. He demonstrated to his disciples that the minister gets to be second, that people come first. The minister gets to be second. So Jesus, in his example, he ministered to the people. And there's nothing in the text that says, you know, I, I guess I can do this, uh, but I was on my way to find some privacy. And after all, you know, my, my cousin was viciously beheaded in prison uh, for no good reason. He was actually delivering and executing the truth, and then he was murdered. Um, so I'm going to take care of this for you. And then if you don't mind, we're going to, me and the boys, we're going to go find some privacy. Uh, there was no guilt trip. There was no nothing. He saw them. He had compassion. These sheep need a shepherd. Yeah. Minister to people saying nothing about what his problems were. So from Jesus' perspective, their needs were greater than his own. And we see that kind of philosophy build in the Gospels, especially among uh, those that are in spiritual leadership. Uh, Paul told the Corinthians that he would gladly spend and be spent for their souls. And it was unconditional because the more Paul loved them, the less they loved him. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15. I would gladly spend and be spent for your sakes, even though the more I love you, the less you love me. Jesus taught the disciples uh, servant leadership, that the servant, of course, in any culture that has slaves and servants, servants eat first, right? <laughs> they get first pick. No, they're, they're second, they're last. They eat last, rest last, they are last, Matthew 20, verse 25 through 28. Later, uh, Peter wrote to the leaders of other churches saying to them, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And of course, the shepherd is the Greek word poimen, 
in, in ancient Greek, it meant to protect. And then as time went by, it, it sort of adopted more uh, of also the concept of nurturing, of feeding. So protecting and nurturing. And so he said, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. <laughs> so when you come out of the boat and you've been seeking privacy, rest, and a time to grieve, you don't do it grudgingly, but you do it eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, First Peter 5, 2 through 3. How many of you guys know shepherds? Any shepherds? One, two. Have you ever watched shepherds, how they, uh, their life is second to the sheep? It is pretty amazing. I mean, we have the story of David, you know, and he's getting ready to go before Saul, and Saul reminds David that he's just a youth, and, uh, and, and then to demonstrate that further, he put on Saul's armor, uh, and, you know, it was a little big for him. Remember, Saul was a head above, taller than everybody else, so it was ridiculous even trying that. But in that whole process, David explained to Saul that when I was a shepherd boy and bears and lions would come for the sheep, I would put myself between them and the lion. But if they managed to get away with one, he said, I would go after them. I would put myself in harm's way for the sheep and, if the, and I would deliver it from the lion's mouth. And then he said, the lion would turn on me. So instead of grabbing the lamb and running, I would grab the lion by its beard and then I would club it to death. I'd love David. That whole image, could you imagine grabbing a lion by the beard for a lamb? I would say, well, that's a sacrificial lamb right there. <laughs> but David, and I have a shepherd's club. They're very impressive. Um, it's just a big knot on the end of a, a, a really hard stick and just wielding that. But this whole idea of the sheep come first and I come second, and I need to do all that I can to protect the sheep from wolves, to bring them to green pastures, to still waters, and the rest. Of course, the Lord, the ultimate shepherd, and Jesus was that example. We even find in Revelation <clears throat> chapter 7, where Jesus places himself as the shepherd among the sheep, and he continues in eternity to shepherd, to look after us, to nurture and protect us. So sweet. So those who want to lead... In spiritual leadership, they must uh, get used to being second. If the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, came to serve and not to be served, then we should be serving others. And if we love others the way that we want to be loved, of course, service will just naturally be a product of that. Our, our time won't be quite so precious. I'm not saying it's not precious, but it won't be so precious. Our projects won't take as much precedent and our needs will look more like wants. And it's not that our, our needs uh, aren't important. They just don't have the value we place on them, just as we see Jesus demonstrating it here in the story. Now, I must say that uh, the beauty of living in a community like ours, and I don't mean Lewis County, I mean the Calvary Chapel community. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, here we find uh, and experience, I believe, a culture of service. And we find that our needs are met, and then we get to find more rest as more people come together. When there's an abundance of hands uh, coming to the aid of others, uh, and then that aid, of course, is reciprocated, the work is lightened. And that's 
obviously how the body of Christ is to function. Just as Paul told the Ephesians, you know, in a healthy body of believers, he says, every joint supplies and every part does its share. And he explains why. He says it's for the edifying of itself in love. So mutual reciprocating love, Ephesians 4.16. And so we see Jesus early on, uh, well, of course, the earliest stages of church history uh, exemplifying this, demonstrating it, because, I mean, he's got to get this whole thing off the ground somehow. And so he did it, the disciples watched and learned it, and then they spread that whole thing to the rest of the community of Christ. And if you're familiar with, especially the first 300 years of church history, you just see this people group uh, called Christians emerging from within the Greek and the Roman and pagan cultures who loved and served and to the point where uh, a, a Roman governor was complaining that the Christians take better care of our people than we do. What a sweet testimony that we could reproduce in our culture today. Amen. Let's move on. So Jesus has been healing and teaching this whole day and when it was evening, could you imagine how exhausting that would be? You're already exhausted. You haven't eaten yourself. You're grieving. And he teaches and heals all day. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, sometimes when you, you try to interpret kind of the tone of what the disciples are saying, it's hard to read uh, you know, so what was their motive here? Did they just want the multitudes to leave Jesus and the rest of them alone as they had done at other times? After all, they were tired. They were hungry. They too were grieving John's death. Remember, a number of these boys were the disciples previously of John the Baptist. There's these intertwined, intertwining of relationships. And mind you, the reasons they give, these are all good reasons to send people away so that they can eat so we can recover, but you could also hide behind reasons like these to cloak your frustration with people or that you're just, you're done with them. Whatever their motive was, it didn't matter because Jesus wasn't done serving yet. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Now, of course, when you read the other Gospels, there's a lot of other details. I'll mention some of them. So whatever plans the boys had, um, they were just put on hold. Okay? And they probably thought that Jesus was going to listen to them, but Jesus had other plans. He was, always had different plans than the boys did. The people didn't need to go away simply because Jesus was there. If he wasn't there, of course, they would have to go away. There's not enough food in that desolate place to feed thousands of people. So Jesus tells the disciples to feed the masses. But the only thing on hand, of course, was five barley loaves. And I don't know if you like barley, but I don't. And two fish, uh, which according to John's gospel, belonged to a young boy. So the only thing they had was a boy's lunch to feed an army. But Jesus basically said, that'll do. That'll suffice. Give it to me. Now, some have pointed out that the true miracle in this story is not the feeding of the masses, but it was actually get, getting this boy to give up his lunch, okay? Now, all the teenage boys in this room are like, exactly, how did they do that? These fishermen can catch their own fish. And uh, man, when I was a teenager, 
food was sacred. And I never had enough to share. There just was never enough food around to, to do that. So the response here from the disciples, I think, is important to point out. And Jesus' response to them, they said, we have here only five loaves and two fish. We have here only five loaves and two fish. But what difference does that make to Jesus? So he responded with, bring that to me. It was more than enough for Jesus to work with. I mean, by the way, he had created the universe from nothing. Okay, he's, he's not like us. He doesn't need to go to uh, Ace to get his lumber, his nails, his plywood, his siding, and the rest. From nothing, no resources, no supplies, out from nothing, he brings everything into existence. And uh, so dividing some bread and fish was a snap. Okay? This is important for us to know. Okay? Whatever we have to offer him, no matter how small or insignificant, it is enough for Jesus to work with. Okay? He can take very little or nothing at all, and he can do whatever he pleases, anything he pleases. Now, this is not my opportunity to talk about you know, how much you're giving to the church and that Jesus can take a little bit and multiply your gift. Uh, he could certainly do that, but that's not my style. Uh, quite honestly, I don't care how much you give. Uh, only God does. So I'll talk about giving when it's in the text. Some could probably extrapolate that from here, but that's not my style. But some people here today, they think about themselves the same way the disciples thought about this kid's lunch. You do. In John's gospel, Andrew said of the bread and the fish, what are these among so many? What does this kid have to offer? That is, the kid's lunch is only enough for the kid. It would be silly to divide this up like a sacrament between thousands of thousands of people. He should just keep it for himself, and then we'll send the rest of the people away. And so like the disciples, you think that what you have to offer is only enough for you, and it would be silly to share what you have with others in the church. And everyone would just be better off if you just kept it to yourself. That's a bunch of garbage, okay? Um, it's hogwash. It's, it's boulder dash. You want me to give you some other ones? It's nonsense, okay? The types of things that we as humans tell ourselves, especially when we're in the crowd of large people, we deceive ourselves and probably Satan is helping you out into thinking something that's not true. You know, you think that you don't know your Bible well enough, so you're not qualified. Well, what is knowing your Bible well enough? You can't speak in front of people, just like Moses, so you have nothing to give. Okay? You're timid. You don't have the personality for it. You have a physical disability that limits you in some capacity. You have a, de a developmental disability, congenital. You know, I have always said that the world needs people with those limitations more than they need us. You know, Iceland now boasts that they're, um, they're basically uh, free of Down syndrome. And it's not because through some magical genetic therapy they have cured Down syndrome. It's because they're killing them all in the womb. Now, I guarantee you that day by day that that culture will become less compassionate overall. I guarantee it. The other countries, Scandinavian, are, are beginning to boast the same. Uh, they will... They deprive themselves of compassion and mercy and what it means to, to love those that are at a disadvantage. Okay? 
You might say, well, I'm not creative. You're not talented or skilled or funny or eloquent, attractive. You're not tall enough. And that would be silly because Gabe Anzalini serves here and has lots to offer. Okay. You have more to offer than warming the seat you sit in. Okay. I guarantee it. What you do have may be small or insignificant from your perspective, but that's more than enough for Christ. It was Jesus who said, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward, Matthew 10, 42. He said again, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus says something as minuscule as a cup of water is worthy of reward. It means something to Christ and it contributes to those who are precious to him. But there's another problem. It's not only that you think little of what you have to offer, you don't think big enough of Christ. So I want to rebuke you a little bit in that, okay? You think little of what you have to offer, but you don't think big enough of Jesus, okay? Who fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, the truth is, Jesus doesn't need you, okay? I don't care what the radio, the Christian radio host has said. It's maddening to me. He does not need you, but he would love to use you. He's not desperate without you, but he could be glorified by you. You know, the creator of the universe isn't left high and dry without your help. As we said, he brought everything into existence when there was no help. But he has called you to serve him and be a blessing to others. So you and myself, we should trust him by offering what we have for his glory and for the sake of other people. He can take a little bit and he can do a lot and he can do it when he pleases. The person, actually, that God looks to use is this one. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He doesn't actually look for the talented, uh, the strong, or the eloquent. You know why? There's no glory in it for him. There's just none. Just ask Gideon. Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He doesn't want anybody on judgment day to go, God, I can see why you chose me. No, he wants people to come humbly before him and say, it's amazing what you did. I came to the table with nothing and you confounded people. It's amazing. Thank you. He chose fishermen, tax collectors, shepherd boys, slaves, farmers, those kinds of people. He chose us. So give him what you have, no matter how small or insignificant. It's up to him and it's for him to do big things with it. Amen. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. Now, he kept giving and kept giving the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Now, this is one of the miracles where the witnesses, I think, are just so amazed that they they provide almost no details. Yeah, it's really interesting. In, in all the accounts, 
they just reported that Jesus had the people sit in groups of 50s and 100s. He blessed the food, divided the bread and fish, gave it to the disciples who gave it to the people. Jesus made dinner and they served it. It's crazy. I mean, how would you explain what just happened anyway? I mean, there's no, uh, no scientific answer that you could give because the miracles, all of them, superseded the laws of nature. So the, the bread and the fish, what could you say? They just kept coming. Jesus just kept handing them out. They would grab a basket full and they would take it to the crowd of 50 and they would come back and there was more fish and bread. Jesus just kept producing it, producing it. There's no natural law to explain this. They saw it and so they reported it. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, of course, in every generation, somebody wants to diminish the nature of the miracle. Uh, And some people have said, well, it was more like a sacrament. Now, we don't do sacraments here at Calvary Chapel uh, because I don't believe they're in the New Testament. I actually don't believe they're anywhere in Scripture. But the idea was like when we come here uh, on the first Sunday of the month and we, we come to the Lord's table, you just get a little fragment of bread and juice. And so what Jesus did was he very carefully, you know, broke the piece of the fin off of the fish and a little crumb. And then that went out and they were satisfied. But it says even here that 12 baskets full were gathered together at the end of all this. You do it to your own folly if you diminish the miraculous nature of all of this. That they were filled comes from the Greek word that means they were satisfied. I, I didn't have time to look, but I think the Latin Vulgate says they were glutted. Now, that's, of course, that's translating from the Greek, uh, not an inspired translation, but uh, that's what, apparently what Jerome thought. Okay. Jesus didn't serve up samples or appetizers. He gave them a meal, and they were satisfied. Among them were 5,000 men beside women and children, if you could divvy out crumbs from two fish to all those people, that's amazing. Now, it's impossible to know exactly how many were fed. Perhaps there were less women and children than we assume, seeing that the people had run so far to catch up with Jesus, um, you know, from west and northwestern villages to Bethsaida. I think it's safe to say that there were upwards of 12 and 15,000 people there. Some scholars say up to 20. I don't know if the the little children, because the moms have to stay, right? With the little children, they could call CPS and there would be big trouble. So I, I assume that many people didn't go, but people were, as they were traveling along the beach, they, word was spreading in those cities. And then, then more would join them and they would travel to the next. And there were tons of fishing villages and cities throughout that area. So I, I think between 12 and 15,000 people and all of them were fed and satisfied. And then after the meal, of course, 12 large baskets were filled with the leftovers because as John 6, 12 says, Jesus wanted nothing wasted. That's an interesting thing that when God blesses, he doesn't want anything wasted. It's interesting. One time um, I acquired a, this gigantic TV, flat screen TVs, especially for me. I mean, I know I've been in some of your homes. Mine was pretty small, but a uh, huge TV. And I said, well, where did it come from? And they said, well, this church threw it away. They had a conference, bought all these huge TVs and all this media. When the conference was over, they threw it all away. They should have got 
baskets full of this stuff and gave it away. So the wicker baskets used in, and this is just an interesting detail, in the feeding of the 5,000 was the kafanos, which was a large basket that was used for carrying provisions. But the baskets used in the feeding of the 4,000 were the spurus, which were larger than the kafanos. In Acts 9.25, when Paul was lowered down the city wall in a basket, that was the spurus, which was a long, narrow basket, apparently long enough and narrow enough that Paul could get into it, okay? And strong enough to be lowered down the city wall. Now, of course, uh, both baskets were woven in different sizes, depending on, you know, the task that they were designed for. So we can't possibly know exactly how big these baskets were, you know, how many loaves and fish they could hold. Uh, but they were large enough to mention, and uh, they were probably the same size that at least the boy was carrying around, uh, or what was normal for people to pack around with their provisions. But Jesus made sure that there was enough for later. Hopefully one of those large baskets was given to the boy. Now, it's interesting, this particular miracle uh, took everything to a whole new level. Okay? Not because it was more important than the other miracles, or that it required more power to perform than the other miracles, but because of what it added to all of the other miracles. The last prophet who actually you know, fed the masses was Moses. And in the context of Israel's history, that's pretty significant. I mean, Moses was the prophet. Oftentimes when the Jews spoke of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they would just say Moses. Everything referred back to Moses. He was the prophet. But Moses didn't actually perform the miracle like Jesus did. God is the one that gave the manna from heaven. God is the one that sent the quail. Now, that wasn't a complete blessing, but the water. But here in our story, it's Jesus who multiplied the bread and the fish. So now you have someone exceeding Moses in the things that he does, the authority that he exude. So, so what do you think about a man like this? What, what category do you place him in? What do you do with a man who has the ability to control the weather, to cast out demons, heal your sick, even raise your dead, and fill your stomach? He can meet all needs, all needs. Therefore, he must have the most exalted position in your mind. He must be placed in the highest category. What do you think of a man like this? Well, you make him king, of course. In fact, in John's gospel, some of the men, they were looking at all this and, and like, wait a second. Over the last two years, look at all this guy has done. So they're putting two to two together. They conclude that Jesus is Messiah King, and they try to take him by force and crown him on the spot. John 6, 14 through 15. But of course, Jesus' time had not yet come, so he disappeared into the crowd, and then he made his way up into the hills for some privacy, and that's okay. It's like a baby. When their diaper is cleaned, they're fed, you put them down and you leave them, right? He administered to the crowds, their needs were met, and he escaped. It was okay. But these people, a better or initial response from them really would have just been to worship him and then to crown him king of their lives. Very interesting how patriotism can be a distraction from what is far more important matters, the matters of the heart. Now, regardless of what the people did or didn't do, Jesus in all of this has demonstrated that he is the good shepherd who provided for their greatest needs and even their deepest hurts. But the problem, as we see throughout the Gospels, 
is the problem with the people. It was their deepest need that they didn't realize was their greatest need. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus' primary purpose for coming was to address man's greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sins. Not to be our president, not to be our king, not to be our healer, not to be our provider. All important things. Jesus provided healing and nourishment, all of which authenticated his identity as the son of God, but his greatest provision was to provide atonement for our sins and then rise from the dead to provide justification before God. All of those other things pale in comparison. I mean, you and I, regenerate by the Holy Spirit, we're going to die anyway. We're going to get something. Something's going to kill us. But we will move from here to his presence, which far exceeds all of that. Would it be nice to be healed? Indeed it would. It would be nice. But it pales in comparison to what he actually came to do. He's the Savior. He came to deliver us from eternal death by his own death and to give us life through his resurrected life. Our physical needs can distract us from the greater needs. We get easily caught up in all things other than what we should get caught up. We should get caught up in Jesus, the salvation he brings, serving him, bringing the gospel of the kingdom. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray.